welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott. And we're culture scholars who like to play Have You Met Ted? Have You Met Ted, really? In today's episode, we're going to be looking at toxic masculinity. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, and also Ted Mosby from How I Met Your Mother, and Ross Geller from Friends. Now, we have very differing feelings towards these different media. Uh, Scott, how do you feel about the, the three different kind of topics of discussion today? So I'm going to admit that I am unapologetically a massive fan of How I Met Your Mother. This was a show, this was the first show that myself and my partner fell in love with together, right? Um, back, way back in 2005. And even though I recognize a lot of odious qualities to it, I cannot help but love How I Met Your Mother. And I don't mind Friends either. Um, I watch a lot of sitcoms, a lot of terrible sitcoms, and Friends is not the worst. I would say that much. Um, but yeah, definitely when it comes to How I Met Your Mother, I want my listeners to know that I'm talking about a show that I do enjoy. I'm sorry in advance, Ted. Not really. <laughs> so I want to say off the bat that I completely understand that perspective. We've had many conversations about my absolute love for Red Dwarf, and Red Dwarf is a show with lots of problems, but I grew up watching it. I love it. I'll never not love it. Um, I hate How I Met Your Mother, and a lot of my friends really like it, and I've seen maybe the first season and a half and then episodes throughout, and I have heard that it gets better as you go along and you start to kind of like go on a journey with the characters and all that kind of stuff. I'm not really willing to put in the time to have that journey. I'm sorry if you love it, but I do not. I enjoy watching Friends. I think Friends, and again, unpopular opinion time, Friends is like the classic overrated show. It's a good show. It is not worth the critical acclaim it seems to get, in my opinion. Um, and Ross is not the only reason for that, but Ross is definitely um, one of the key things that frustrates me about this show, even when I can watch episodes, really like it. I've watched every episode of Friends multiple times, really enjoyed them. Um, don't enjoy Ross. Uh, and we'll get into that. In terms of Beauty and the Beast, I love Beauty and the Beast, uh, particularly the 1991 um, animation. Absolutely adore it. And I, I quite enjoyed the, the live action remake of it. Um, yeah, it was kind of nice. A little bit of nostalgia. I enjoyed going to see it with some friends. That's kind of my, where I'm sitting with Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I am right there with you on Ross, but I do want to underline that I actually do enjoy a lot of his comedic moments. I don't feel like this should be taken as an attack on David Schwimmer's performance because I do think he's genuinely funny a lot. Um, and same goes with uh, Josh Radnor as Ted Mosby. I don't think I don't think anyone watches How I Met Your Mother for Josh Radnor's performance. Um, but again, I don't I feel like the criticisms we're about to undertake of both characters should not be a reflection of how we feel about um, the acting qualities and the comedy of the two performers. Absolutely. I do think actually the only reason Ross is so loved is because of how great the comedic timing of the actor is. Yeah. So I just want to kind of explain how we're approaching this episode because it's going to be a little bit different to our previous episodes. In the past, we've done kind of very separate case studies um, that tie into our topic. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at Gaston as our starting point. And we're going to be really breaking down the different 
aspects of his character that make him a pretty awful guy. Uh, And then we're going to look at those aspects and compare them to Ross and Ted and see how Ross and Ted stand up. Um, Now, Ross and Ted might be really great friends to their to their, you know, friendship circles, they might have really great other qualities. We're talking specifically about masculinity and how they perform masculinity and how they treat the women they're romantically interested in in this episode. So yes, there are some things that I've seen Ross do that are are genuinely really lovely, uh, and I'm sure Ted has the same, but we're talking in a very specific context in this episode. Uh, So I think before we get into it, it's probably worth unpacking the term toxic masculinity. So I want to begin by just being really clear that toxic masculinity is different to masculinity. There's nothing wrong with masculinity. There's nothing wrong with femininity. There's nothing wrong with how you express uh, particular kind of gender traits or even stereotypes. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Toxic masculinity specifically is talking about how patriarchal societies, um, privilege particular performances of masculinity, masculinity that's quite dangerous. And I think this will be clear as we start to go through the examples with Gaston, what these particular traits are. So in a patriarchal society, boys are taught to behave in a very specific way. They're taught to perform in a very specific way, and that's encouraged. And what's dangerous about that is the type of performances that are encouraged and the types of attitudes that are really treated as desirable and treated as the right way to behave and what really makes a man because as we both know and as I hope a lot of our listeners understand there is no right way to be a man um and certainly behaving in a very macho Gaston way is neither I mean macho-ness is neither good nor bad Gaston's behavior is bad and we'll we'll get into that I mean that's the whole point of his song, like Gaston, right? He is the ideal male, the ideal patriarch. That's, I mean, that's how the whole small village views him. They're all singing and dancing about how great Gaston is and how well he embodies all these ideal masculine traits that just go to such a dangerous, dark place. Yeah, and what's really interesting about Beauty and the Beast is the film, or the films, plural, don't behave as if Gaston is a good guy. They they actually do quite an, a good job of showing how, you know, the, this kind of micro-society that is the village that Belle lives in um, do all encourage him to behave in a certain way and think this is an amazing way for a man to behave. He is the ideal man. But at a kind of, if we step back uh, a bit, the audience isn't supposed to agree with that. The audience is supposed to be really critical of that and not see him as the perfect man, even if everyone except for Belle and her father think that he is. But that's quite different to most of the time how friends and how I met your mother treat Ross and Ted. They're seen as nice guys. Um, and I think that that term nice guys is... Uh, a little bit more prominent, I guess, in uh, pop culture and social media these days, and maybe it was certainly than it was back when the first Being the Beast uh, Disney film was created. But yeah, we really want to understand why Friends and How I Met Your Mother like Ross and Ted's actions. Again, most of the time, sometimes it does show them to be negative, 
or at least is able to forgive their actions, even if it's critical of them. Whereas Beauty and the Beast does not encourage us at all to forgive anything that Gaston does, um, even before he, you know, straight up tries to murder the Beast. <laughs> so what we're going to be looking at is the ways in which Ross and Ted are actually quite similar to Gaston and his behaviour, and ask along the way what makes them likeable and Gaston so odious and whether or not uh, the the aspects to Ted and Ross's characters that make them likeable are truly enough to warrant that kind of framing. So we have a list of elements of, uh, again, that, that idea of toxic masculinity and how um, toxic attitudes towards towards women and also, you know, towards others as well, but specifically towards women in this case, um, come out in these three different media. So the first one is a focus on physical attractiveness over other qualities. So Scott, how does Gaston rate here? So we are introduced immediately to Gaston, um, spying on Belle at a distance commenting on her physical beauty and it's made very clear very very clear that Gaston does not care an ounce for what for anything that makes Belle Belle right besides her physical appearance um which she immediately comments on and even has that weird exchange not too long after that where he points out the book that Belle's carrying and has never read it but he's like you know books books are great yeah he clearly has no idea who Belle is, what she's about, what she's interested in, nor cares. It's just her beauty that he wants. Wow, you didn't miss a shot, Gaston. <laughs> You're the greatest hunter in the whole world. I know. <laughs> no beast alive stands a chance against you. <laughs> and no girl for that matter. It's true, LeFou. And I've got my sights set on that one. <laughs> the inventor's daughter? She's the one. The lucky girl I'm going to marry. But she's... The most beautiful girl in town. I know, but... That makes her the best. And don't I deserve the best? <laughs> well, of course. I mean, you do, but... Samia, how does Ross stack up to this Gaston archetype? Um, so I don't want to completely equate Ross and Gaston. I think certainly as we go on, Ross um, learns more about the women that he dates. And, uh, in a point later, we're actually going to talk about how this isn't always a good thing because uh, I think Gaston would be much more accepting of a less intelligent wife than Ross would be. So we kind of get introduced to Ross's infatuation with Rachel, um, as something that started when she was in high school. You know, you probably didn't know this, but back in high school, I had a um, major crush on you. I knew. Yeah. You did? Oh, okay. I always figured you just thought it was Monica's geeky older brother. I did. Oh. <laughs> At this stage, Ross clearly only knows Rachel from initially her good looks because that's what makes him really attracted to her and then when he starts to get to know her a little bit better he sees her as really stuck up so the only positive attribute he's really seen about Rachel at this point is her attractiveness uh, and I think that's something that carries on into the show like immediately in the very first episode when she shows up again we're, we're told about his crush when he was young. We're not really given any more depth about 
why he was attracted to her. It's it's more just, you know, he had a crush on her. And it takes a really long time for us to see him express any genuine understanding of who she is as a person because Rachel actually does evolve quite a lot throughout the 10 seasons of Friends. Um, she is pretty naive and, you know, she's, you know, this, you know, poor little rich girl when we first meet her. Um, she's a little bit stuck up, but she does grow a lot, uh, particularly from deciding that she doesn't want to be using her father's money anymore. She doesn't want to marry someone just because that guy has money. Um, she wants to do it on her own and we see her evolve and I don't think we ever see Ross see how she's evolving, like actually see it, understand that she's evolved as a character. I'm not convinced that he sees her at the end of season 10 as significantly different to how he saw her at the beginning of season one, except that now, by the end of season 10, she's the mother of his child. So Scott, how does Ted compare? So like Gaston, I would say that Ted fulfills the trope of falling in love at first sight. Um, we are introduced to him in the pilot episode uh, at a point in his life where he convinces himself that he's ready to settle down and find the one. Um, this is sparked by the fact that his best friends Marshall and Lily have just gotten engaged. And so he's uh, at their local watering hole, their bar, and he spies Robin across the room and swooping romantic music he'd choose. Plus, Marshall's found the love of his life, even if I was ready, which I'm not. But if I was, it's like, okay, I'm ready. Where is she? And there she was. Telling us, signaling to us that he's fallen in love. And he believes so. In fact, he, on their first date, he tells her that he loves her already, right? And that draws about the normal response from everyone else who has, hears this story. I think I'm in love with you. What? <laughs> what? What? See, I find that really funny. And I, I have seen that episode of How I Met Your Mother. And I didn't even think about this connection until listening to you describe it. But it's not a world of difference to how we're introduced to Rachel and Ross. Uh, I rewatched the first episode of Friends yesterday, and Pilot's always really interesting because Pilot's are supposed to set up the characters and set up their relationships. Uh, and this is how Ross and Rachel are set up. Ross is lamenting the fact that his wife has left him for a woman, and my God, we can do without all of those lesbian jokes that we get throughout 10 seasons of Friends. Um, but yeah, so, so Ross is really upset uh, because uh, she moved out all of her stuff on that day. And he's sitting there, he's all mopey, and he's like, I just want to be married again. And as soon as he says that, Rachel walks in in a wedding dress. See, but I don't want to be single, okay? I just, I just, I just want to be married again. And I just want a million dollars. Subtle. <laughs> so even if it's, you know, played for a joke, the idea is this is the pilot. It's supposed to be setting up these two relationships. And if we're going by the kind of subtext here, I would argue that we're supposed to read this as Ross wants to be married. And again, this is a joke that's played throughout. He gets married three times that we know of. Um, that we know of? <laughs> that we know of. Who knows what happens afterwards? So he gets married three times, and yeah, we'll get to those marriages. He's a guy that wants to be married, and here comes Rachel. Yeah, that's a very interesting parallel to make, because 
I believe Ted convinces himself that he's chasing the abstract one. And for a good portion of the early seasons uh, post-Robin, that is indeed the case. He, he continues to believe that he's chasing the one when in actual fact, and it's made very clear, eventually he's chasing Robin. Um, but I want to unpack the moment where he sees Robin uh, for the first time because there is no other reason to believe there's no other reason for his immediate infatuation besides her appearance right because he doesn't know anything about this woman even after the first date where he says the premature i love you on their first date he still cannot really say that he knows this person so what is it that he's actually attracted to at that point it has to be appearance right so does the fact that ross claims to have loved rachel since childhood actually matter um Com compared to Ted and Gaston, who are very clearly love at first sight scenarios, um, do you think that changes the way we should perceive his behavior or even the integrity of his feelings towards her? No, I think if anything, uh, Ross, before we meet him at the beginning of Friends and his attitude towards Rachel is even more like Gaston. Ross as a kid, say kid, as you know, a young man or a teenager, late teenager, is much less interested in knowing who Rachel is as a person, much less interested in developing, you know, a genuine, thoughtful, uh, reciprocal relationship with Rachel. He sees her as the hot girl and then later the stuck-up girl. Um, and then there's also, you know, the, the whole idea of her being his younger sister's friend and there's that kind of, I guess, access there through being the older brother of, you know, her, her best friend. Um, so no, I, I don't think it should matter because up until probably late season one or season two, I'm not convinced Ross has genuine feelings for Rachel at all. I think he would be attracted to anyone who looked like her. Nobody looks like Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get into another trait of masculinity, and that is, or toxic masculinity, I should say, and that is the very pronounced superiority complex that comes with it. So, Mia, how, how does Gaston exhibit this trait? So to be fair, the way Gaston uh, exhibits a superiority complex is going to be very different to the way that Ross and Ted do it, but they all do it. We'll get to it. Um... So Gaston is handsome, he's strong, and he has the admiration of almost everyone in the town that he lives. And that's really important. It's not any kind of inflated ego um, of how people perceive him. He's actually very spot on with how everyone except for Belle perceives him. But my God, does it go to his head. He's very aware of how attractive he is. He's very aware of how strong he is. As you see, I've got biceps to spare. Not a bit of him scraggly or scrawny. That's right. And every last inch of me's covered with hair. No one hits like Gaston. Match his lips like Gaston. In a spitting match, nobody spits like Gaston. I'm especially good at expectorating. Tweet! Ten points for Gaston! And he, there's this inherent implication when he... Dis uh, not even implication, he outright says it, um, 
the idea that because he is attractive and strong and loved by everyone, that he deserves the attractive girl. Um, that he is the most superior man in town, so he deserves what he uh, appears, like, kind of considers to be the most superior woman in town. What's interesting about Gaston, though, compared to our other two examples, is he's anti-intellectual. So he's almost the inverse of Ross and Ted. He disparages Belle's love of books. Hello, Belle. Bonjour, Gaston. Gaston, may I have my book, please? How can you read this? There's no pictures. Well, some people use their imagination. Belle, it's about time you got your head out of those books and paid attention to more important things. Like me. <sighs> the whole town's talking about it. It's not right for a woman to read. Soon she starts getting ideas and thinking. Gaston, you are positively primeval. <laughs> Thank you, Belle. What do you say you and me take a walk over to the tavern and take a look at my trophies? Maybe some other time. And we'll get a little bit more into why that might be the case in some of our later discussion. But he sees that focus on the physical and, um, you know, he's very kind of more straightforward, you know, skills with his body as being much more valuable than any kind of intellectualism. And that, I think, is why he keeps focusing on Belle's beauty and keeps kind of trying to downplay how smart she is because he wants the person who matches his physical attributes. He doesn't want someone who's smart and thinks. I mean, sure, that's a great answer, but what I was looking for was he exhibits it through song. <laughs> Look at her, LeFou, my future wife. Belle is the most beautiful girl in the village. That makes her the best. But she's so well-read, and you're so athletically inclined. I know. Belle can be as argumentative as she is beautiful. Exactly. Who needs her when you've got us? Yes. But ever since the war, I felt like I've been missing something. And she's the only girl that gives me that sense of... Mm, je ne sais quoi? I don't know what that means. Right from the moment when I met her, saw her, I said she's gorgeous and I fell. Here in town there's only she who is beautiful as me, so I'm making plans to woo and marry Belle. So I've mentioned that Gaston's anti-intellectualism is, I guess, the anti-Ross and anti-Ted. Scott, how is Ted in this category? Ted is a pretentious douche. Um, I mean, there, how much mother is replete with examples of Ted's superiority complex, even just in a, in a self-anointed intellectual sense from the pronunciation and correction of people on encyclopedia. Hey! Hey! What's that? A 1986 world book encyclopedia. That's exactly the one I grew up with. Encyclopedia? Oh, you think it should be pronounced encyclopedia. It's a common mistake. But if you look up that squished together AE symbol in this here encyclopedia, you'll learn that it's a ligature derived from the Anglo-Saxon rune Ash. I mean, there's this whole episode dedicated to all his friend group realizing that he's always constantly correcting them on the use of correct words and just his general pedantic nature. 
Um, he also recites Dante in the original Latin, although yeah. he, he does come to an epiphany midway through that he's being a pretentious douche doing it. So I don't know where you want to take that, whether that's to his credit or not. Um, yeah, he really exhibits this whole wannabe philosopher. Uh, I don't know if you call it a stereotype, but it's definitely a trait. We'll see it with Ross as well. But he's also he's also kind of judgmental a lot towards the relationships of his friends, particularly when Barney, portrayed by Neil Patrick Harris, um, starts dating Robin herself. Um, he's very, very critical of the way in which they go about their relationship, these two characters being quite, quite comfortable with casual sex and not really adhering to the mushy romantic tropes of, you know... Um, Basically, everything that Ted embodies, um, the kind of romanticism when it comes to courting and so forth. Yeah, so in that sense, Ted definitely does exhibit a superiority com complex. But like, um, like you said, uh, it is very much of an in intellectual nature, a self-proclaimed intellectual nature. And this is very similar to Ross, is it not? I think before I get into Ross, I need to point to the elephant in the room here that we are academics and it can be super tempting to be a douchey asshole. I like to think I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope I'm not. Um, me just pulling apart these three characters probably isn't to my credit, but mm. I, I guess I want to make a distinction between being critical of anti-intellectualism, which has a very uh, difficult history. Um, you know, we we saw we see that dictators constantly have this very anti-intellectual perspective, and now Donald Trump has a very anti-intellectual outtake. Um, so anti-intellectualism is a problem. Um, however, not being a quote-unquote intellectual is absolutely fine. Uh, <laughs> um, but Ross doesn't seem to think so. Ross. Uh, certainly thinks he's better than people who aren't capital I intellectual. And we see this over and over again. He talks about being a doctor all the time. And, you know, to be fair, uh, his friends, including Rachel, do make the kind of joke of, you know, an actual doctor. Hi, um, uh, excuse me, I'm here to see my father. My name is Rachel Green. And I'm Dr. Ross Geller. Ross, please, this is a hospital, okay? That actually means something here. So, yes. Ross is a paleontologist. He has a PhD, so a doctor of philosophy. So he is a doctor. He is not a doctor of medicine. Um, as we will not be doctors of medicine. But there's also nothing wrong with being proud of your achievements. But my God, Ross is just a pretentious asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, like, to the point where he, when he finds out that people in NYU Library are hooking up near his doctoral thesis, where the copy of his doctoral thesis is kept, he patrols to stop people making out near it. Do you remember that episode? I do remember. <laughs> I mean, he does hook up there afterwards, but... <laughs> Doesn't he use it to his advantage as well? Yeah, he, he later does, but that's, that's not how the episode starts. And I, I just want to contrast this to... I think it's season 10 or season 9, it's certainly later, where we see Ross and Rachel at 
um, a conference that he's speaking at. Much the same way that Homo ergaster is now thought to be a separate species from Homo erectus. <laughs> what? He said erectus. You're, you're kidding, right? No, you really said it. And while there are certainly vast differences between these Mesozoic fossils and the example of Homo erectus... <laughs> erectus? Homo. And you know, it, it's an immature joke, but it's really cute seeing these two people kind of like giggling to each other about these words. And then just seeing Ross and Charlie, who's the other um, academic who's there, kind of just looking down on them. I mean, let's not pretend that Ross would look down on us in the humanities as well. That's very true. Uh, we are... I, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of similar to the Big Bang Theory when you look at how Sheldon talks about biologists. I think that's how uh, Ross would look at our area of research. But, um, yeah, I, I, have, I have a real problem with how Ross um, portrays himself as an intellectual and therefore better than other people. And then we'll also get the whole Unagi episode where he's talking about how he has Unagi and how, like, yeah, <laughs> so I, we won't be able to uh, show the actions in this in the audio clips. Um, but yeah, he's he's an asshole, and I'm glad that the uh, the the episode takes efforts to to point out his douchiness by being like, Unagi means eel. No, now we can kick anybody's ass. Yeah. After one class, I don't think so. You want to see me self-defend myself? Go over there and pretend you're a sexual predator. Go on, I dare you! Well, of course you could defend yourself from an attack you know is coming. That's not enough. Look, I studied karate for a long time. <laughs> and there's a concept you should really be familiar with. It's what the Japanese call unagi. Isn't that a kind of sushi? <laughs> No, it's a concept. Yeah, it is, it is. It's freshwater eel. <laughs> All right, maybe it means that too. Oh, I would kill for a salmon skin roll right now. I mean, I need to restrain myself sometimes with Ross because, like Ross, as a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And like Ross, I am in academia. And like Ross, I do a lot of the shit that he does. It's just, yeah, I don't want to over-identify with this guy. <laughs> Yeah, we have a, a real problem here. I was reading, actually, the notes last night that Scott had put down for Ted and the idea of him being a wannabe philosopher. I'm like, but I'm a wannabe philosopher. <laughs> so the next trait we want to talk about is the aggressive pursuit of the female romantic love interest. So Gaston is a hunter and that is all he's about. His pursuit of Belle is even phrased or framed in his eyes as a hunt as well. So, moving on. No, LeFou. It's the ones who play hard to get that are always the sweetest prey. That's what makes Belle so appealing. She hasn't made a fool of herself just to gain my favor. What would you call that? Dignity? It's outrageously attractive, isn't it? Um, how, how does it manifest in the animated film um so gaston prepares a wedding for her so he comes over uh you know explains how it's gonna be gaston what a pleasant surprise isn't it though 
I'm just full of surprises. You know, Belle, there's not a girl in town who wouldn't love to be in your shoes. This is the day... Hmm. <clears throat> ah. This is the day your dreams come true. What do you know about my dreams, Gaston? Plenty. Here, picture this. A rustic hunting lodge, my latest kill roasting on the fire, and my little wife massaging my feet. Well, the little ones play on the floor with the dogs. Oh, we'll have six or seven. Dogs? No, Belle. Strapping boys like me. Imagine that. And do you know who that little wife will be? Let me think. You, Belle. Gaston, I'm... I'm... speechless. I really don't know what to say. <laughs> say you'll marry me. I'm very sorry, Gaston, but... but... I just don't deserve you. Whoa! As this happens, you hear the, the wedding music playing because all these people waiting outside expecting to throw a wedding for her. Again, this is one of the few conversations I've had as far as we can tell. I guess the underlying point of this trope is the fact that it is entirely irrelevant what the feelings of the woman is, in this case, <laughs> Belle. Yeah, and I think one thing we, we didn't actually put as a separate... Um, idea here but I think does carry into some of our other ideas is the kind of aggressive competition with other males now I, I don't know about how about your mother I'm making an assumption here I, I can't imagine Ross or Ted getting into serious physical fights with other men um, certainly not trying to kill them with a mob of villagers at your back no so- <laughs> I can yeah no but yeah that, that's certainly another way that we see uh, Gaston's aggressive pursuits take place to the point where he's like, I'll just kill all the competition. I mean, foolproof, right? Mm-hmm. So Mia, how does Ross pursue Rachel? This was actually kind of a hard one to plan because so much of what he does actually ties into some of the later points. So I don't want to go into everything here. Um, but I guess the big one that comes up to me is not so much the fact that they get drunkenly married in Vegas. Uh, as we find out, it, you know, it was Rachel's idea. That's not a problem. They were both to blame in this instance. But the fact that he pretends he's annulled the marriage, but doesn't. Hey, so uh, did everything go all right with the uh, annulment? Oh, yeah. No problems. It's all taken care of. Ross, thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, do you guys want to go see a movie? Oh, yeah. Why not? Yeah, Phoebe's? No, thanks. I've already seen one. <laughs> hey, um... I'm gonna get my sweater. Okay. You want want to hear something weird? Always. I didn't get the annulment. What? We're still married. (laughs) Don't tell Rachel. See you later. So, I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff that Ross does that I could put here, but I'm actually gonna save for another section. for me, the, the most obvious example of pursuit is the finale. Uh, the finale, which, I mean, I know a lot of people were happy with the idea of Ross and Rachel getting together. I'm still devastated at the idea that he followed her to the airport, um, caught her at the very end, and he he stops her from going overseas So Rachel's at the airport, having left everything she knows behind, going 
to this job in Paris because she knows that there's nothing left for her um, career-wise in New York. She has friends that are really, really close to her. She's got family that's close to her. She's got all of this stuff in New York, but she knows that if she wants to succeed in her career, she needs to go to Paris. That's the only way up. She understands that. Monica understands that. Uh, Chandler and Joey understand that. Phoebe, not so much. Uh, and Ross, I don't think cares. What? What? Ross, okay, you're scaring me. What's going on? Okay. Thing is... Yeah. Don't go. What? Please, please stay with me. I am so in love with you. Please don't go. Oh, my God. I know, I know. I shouldn't have waited till now to say it, but I'm... That was stupid, okay? I'm sorry, but I'm telling you now. I love you. Do not get on this plane. Miss, are you boarding the plane? Hey, hey. I know you love me. I know you do. Miss. I... I, I have to get on the plane. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you I don't. Do. They're waiting for me, Ross. I can't do this right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rachel. I don't think Ross values her career. I don't think he values her aspirations. All he cares about is that he wants to be with her and therefore he assumes that she wants to be with him, which, you know, that's true. She does clearly like him. And that's enough for him to go over and try and convince her to not get on the plane. So let's go on to Ted. How does Ted play into this? So what I really like about How I Met Your Mother is... First of all, the concept, because it goes it goes places that I feel that a lot of sitcoms are not uh, bold enough to go. So we're talking about stuff like the death of parents, um, uh, sometimes motherhood just being shit, so on and so forth. Like it, go, it goes, in many respects, particularly late in this series, I would say it's less a sitcom and more a drama. The other thing I like about How I Met Your Mother is this this concept of how Ted is telling his kids how he met their mother. And it's a very Ted Mosbyan thing to do, to spend nine years telling all these goddamn stories to his kids, which is very consistent character work. But it also hinges on the fact that Ted is trying to not only convey how much their mother meant to him, but also tacitly seek their approval in one last shot at Robin. Let's look at the facts here. You made a sit down and listen to the story about how you met mom, yet mom is hardly in the story. No, this is a story about how you're totally in love with Aunt Robin. And you're thinking about asking her out and you wanna know if we're okay with it. I can't believe this. I kept this story short and to the point and you guys still missed it. The point of the story is that... Is that you totally, totally, totally have the hots for Aunt Robin. No, I don't. Yes, you do. You're grounded. Wow, you were really into Aunt Robin. You're grounded, too. <laughs> it's a lot more subtle than Friends in this whole Ross-Rachel dynamic. It's, it's still very much Ted Robin. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the time in this series, it's quite, it's quite buried. Um, it's, it's not quite in your face like Ross and Rachel, but it's still very much that dynamic. Um, and Ted, Ted, in telling these stories to his kids, I, do, I think we need to be very mindful of the fact that he's very much 
narrativizing his own past, narr narrativizing his own experiences. So when he's framing these stories as big romantic gestures, that is something that Ted himself sees. Um, and I want to look at that a little, a little more closely about whether, in fact, that his behavior is, uh, I mean, tolerable at all, really. And so in the very early seasons of How I Met Your Mother, it's very much about him chasing Robin, quite bluntly. So we get that whole introduction in the pilot where he falls in love on sight and then spends the rest of that season finally getting her in the end. And it's just one big romantic gesture, as he calls it, after another, after another. So he steals the blue French horn from their first date, um, rocks up to a house. Okay, <laughs> let's talk. Okay. Um. Oh, hey, you guys uh, want to take five? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Just need a minute. Sort of a, a big life decision. Love the blue instruments, though. Kind of an inside joke. <laughs> Thanks. He sets up multiple parties across consecutive days just to spend some time with her. Ted, I'm jeopardizing my law career so you can throw not one, not two, but three parties for some girl that you just met who's probably not even going to show up. I mean, where is she, Ted, huh? Where's Robin? <laughs> just trying to think of all the different things he attempts just to get with Robin is crazy in the first season. He attempts a rain dance. Uh, a Native American rain dance uh, to try and to try and cause the weather to change so that Robin won't go in a camp with a co-worker and instead spend time with him. And it apparently works. Look, I, I might be crazy right now. No, you know what? I am definitely crazy right now. But I have a plan. That girl you used to go out with, Penelope, uh, wasn't she getting her PhD in Native American culture? Yeah. Are you still in touch with her? Sure. I mean, even though we stopped having sex, we still get together like once a month to chat and catch up. And of course I'm not in touch with her. Well, you're going to need to get in touch with her. She's going to teach me how to do a rain dance. But even after the breakup with Robin in season two, Ted continues to frame his pursuit throughout the series as though he's chasing the, anonym, the anonymous one, right? So this abstract ideal. I mean, he has actually got a checklist for his perfect woman as well. So it's not e exactly abstract. <laughs> it's very, very particular. Um, but that's the way in which he conceives of his own, his own experience. That's how he relays it to his children. But it's very clear to everyone around him. And it becomes very, very explicit as the series gets older, that in fact, the one in his eyes is still Robin. So speaking of lists, uh, this is actually something I probably should have mentioned in the superiority complex part, but I forgot about it until you just mentioned uh, Ted's list. Ross also has a list. Uh, this is for him to decide between Rachel and Julie, uh, another you know potential girlfriend or a girl that he's been dating. Kind of ditzy. <clears throat> Too into her looks. Spoiled. Now that's a little spoil. He was supposed to type little, the idiot. <laughs> Just a waitress? Now that, that was, uh, I mean, as opposed to uh, the, um, okay, is, is this over yet? <laughs> yeah, I just, sorry, I just needed to get that in there because I forgot about that until now and it, it needed to be said. <laughs> I would argue Ross is too into her looks. Um, <laughs> at least Ted's list basically hinges on the woman being able to quote Ghostbusters. 
I mean, season one follows that typical sitcom dynamic. And uh, it's in episode two where the initial chance of Ted and Robin is kind of put a pin in. It's very clear that Robin's not looking to settle down. Uh, She's really focused on improving her career. Um, And Ted kind of struggles to deal with that. He says he's okay with it, and they do basically branch off to date other people until the late season. Um, But that was not news to Ted. It was very clear to Ted during those first two episodes that that is what Robin was about, and he still aggressively pursues her with all these gestures and stuff. That second episode is very interesting because that's the one where he finds out when she's shooting a live report uh, and as it turns out, it's a live report about a kid that got trapped in a crane machine trying to get a plush purple giraffe. And later in the episode, when Ted is going through this dilemma of whether he should intervene on another guy hitting on Robin, it sort of goes through this montage of him sitting there thinking about Robin, images of Robin, and then the crane picking up the purple giraffe. Like... um Could you get any more blunt about Robin being an object? (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned that Ted and Robin went on to date other people during season one. And one of those, those figures that Ted dates is Victoria, who is framed as basically the perfect person for him, except for one detail. And that's the fact that she isn't Robin. Um, (laughs) And that basically derails the relationship. In fact, Ted almost cheats on Victoria when she's gone off to a cadetship in Germany, um, basically almost cheats on her because she's away and she's not Robin. He actually says that. Um, Fortunately, he gets caught. Why should I have to go home? You you know, there's every chance Robin's the woman I'm going to marry. Ted. It could happen. And so really, what's it going to matter in 50 years if I jump the gun by one night? Look, I, I know this is a moral gray area, but it's Robin. I'm exhausted. I am. I'm exhausted from pretending I'm not in love with her. I think that makes this okay. Oh, please. You just want to get laid. Yes, I do. You got me. That is exactly what I want right now. And so what? I want this. She wants this. It's happening. And if you have a problem with it, don't be in Germany. It's been nice pretending to talk to you. Thanks for not calling me, and good night. That's not your phone. This isn't my phone. Okay. Bye. I thought it was mine, so I answered it. Was it? It was your girlfriend. You might want to call her back. And I am starting to realize now that when people say they can't stand how I met your mother because of Ted, season one Ted is pretty odious. Um, And so basically the middle portion of the series... Ted is gradually being worn down in his pursuit of the abstract one, even though he's not really doing much to actually find her as well, I will add. And then we reach the point where Victoria returns. So Ted's reached a point where he has actually been sacrificing love for his career, basically a Robin-esque move, while Robin is actually getting married. Um, So Victoria returns, and again, the relationship derails because Victoria makes it very explicit that 
Ted has not found his partner because of Robin. I'm not in love with Robin. But she's like family to me, and uh, I can't end that. So, can you accept that? I really hope you get her someday. Ted chooses Robin breaks up with Victoria again. And it is at this point I start to not care about Ted and his pursuit of romance. You know, the more we discuss this, the more I'm seeing the parallels between Ross and Ted. Because again, of course, we have Emily, who cannot be with Ross unless Rachel goes from his life. Like, is, is this a thing? Is this like... You know, if you've got this one person who's perfect in your life and then you get with someone else, it's going to cause these issues I mean I, I'm not I'm not all about the, the one person the only one person you could ever be with out of seven million people sorry seven billion people in the world but yeah it, it's a thing it's a thing in sitcoms that's actually interesting because from memory um Ross's friends are very much condemning Emily for a position mm-hmm. even though Ross said fucking Rachel's name at their wedding Whereas in How Much Your Mother, I think the the similar scenario is what are you going to choose, Ted? And there was like there a lot of his, a lot of the friendship group were like would be sad if we can't hang out the same way anymore. But you know, this is a serious dilemma, and you need to make the choice. That's your choice. I am a little bit conflicted in this because previously when I've watched it, I've kind of gotten a bit frustrated with Emily, but I think Ross brings that on himself. The way he romanticizes Rachel as this perfect person to the point where he can't get her out of his head. Um, I hate jealousy storylines and we will get to the jealousy in just a moment, but I, you know, I can understand how Emily would feel that way. Uh, And Rachel to her credit does try to stay out of the way and she does try to respect that even if everyone else is kind of like oh that's not reasonable she's not here yeah i mean i think i think the friendship group is being a little selfish there i know we all like them or most of them but and we want them all to still be together we want the show to continue as friends but i think they're being a little selfish there i i think you know yes i'm not against selfishness full stop i think everyone's a little bit selfish i think what's probably a bit more annoying is they're being hypocritical can you really imagine um any of them being okay with someone they were dating still hanging out with someone who's always been the one true love of theirs i I don't think any of them would accept that in a partner even if we can as listeners sorry as as watchers of the show think that maybe we'd behave slightly differently right so it is proven that Victoria is in fact correct and Ted realises this. Um, and then so he goes through this process of pursuing Robin one last time. They have a pact, you know, that if neither of us are married at 40, we'll marry each other pact, which has been established for a very long time in the series by this point. I'm talking like this is late season series now. Um, and There's Te- a pact like that in Friends as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've heard it said many times that How I Met Your Mother is the friends of the subsequent generation. Yeah. Um but Ted at this point is like, you know what? 
so long as that door is a little ajar, I'm going to continue subconsciously sacrificing all my relationships in the hope that I'll win the lottery. I think he says that pretty much verbatim. So he puts Robin on the spot and asks her, do you love me? And it does seem like she, I mean, she obviously still has feelings for him, but, and it does seem like she may say yes, but then she goes off to a trip to Russia for reporting, comes back and she's like, no. Just tell me. Do you love me? No. And that's like a massive wound that's open for Ted for the rest of the series. It keeps getting referenced over and over again. So we keep getting this, this callback even when Robin and Barney uh, start dating again and then get married that Ted is not really okay with this. Um, which leads into the finale and its final point where because this door has been shut, Ted is finally ready to meet the mother who's never actually named, I don't think. Um, but he meets the mother at Barney and Robin's wedding. So again, it doubles down on this idea that so long as Robin was even remotely av available, Ted was not going to settle down with anyone else, but he, he does. And then um, the, the mother passes away. And so we get that final moment where uh, maybe even Ted's not really aware of what he's doing by telling these stories to his kids, but they are aware. They are aware that he's basically seeking permission to, you know, move on and chase Robin one last time uh, because it's worked so well. So well. I'm sorry, how many one last times does this guy get? Let's see. Um, so there's the first two episodes. Then he cheats, almost cheats on Victoria, still season one, then gets with Robin, then they break up, then they have casual sex every now and then. Um, he moves on, she can't. I'm going to say about six or seven. <laughs> six or seven. Seven chances. And the way the series leaves it off is it basically heavily implies that they finally settle down together. So yeah, you could pretty much say Ted aggressively pursues Robin, even if he's not aware of it himself half the time. Yeah, and I think this manner of aggressive pursuit that we see, or certainly some of the ways that we are seeing the pursuit manifest in um, Friends and How I Met Your Mother and Beating the Beast uh, are made possible by a consideration of women as possession, uh, possession, something that you can chase and acquire. So this is the next point we want to talk about, which is how females are frequently framed as um, an object, as something that can be won, and also something that can be fought over and something that you can feel like someone is taking away from you. Right. So how does Gaston represent this? I mean, I think we need to come back to that whole hunter idea. Gaston is a hunter. He has prizes. He puts them on his wall. He uses antlers in all of his decorating. I use antlers in all of my decorating. <laughs> and the first way he kind of describes Belle is... Um, you know, like we're saying, she's the most beautiful girl in town. That means she's the best. Uh, and in the animated version, he goes on to say, don't I deserve the best? He sees her as a prize. I, I don't even know what else to say about that with Gaston. I think this is a really obvious 
parallel here. I, I can't imagine anyone viewing Gaston and being like, no, he doesn't see women as possessions. <laughs> so maybe that means we should go on to some potentially more complex examples. How does Ted fit in here? So I think the way this manifests in both How I Met Your Mother and Friends is through, you know, tropes of jealousy, tropes of longing. So with Ted, um, I don't I don't think there's any real... I was going to say pronounced jealousy, but yeah, no, actually he does have really pronounced jealous moments. They just manifest in ways that are kind of tender. So Robin eventually falls in love with and marries Barney. Um, so I mentioned the ways, the, the moment in which Robin finally conclusively says she doesn't love Ted. This is right before she starts dating Barney for real and they eventually get married leading into the end of the series. Um, and Ted has a few moments where he's like, you know what? He, he, he expresses the feeling that Robin should be marrying him, not Barney. Robin shouldn't be with Barney. She should be with me. And I think that that's probably the greatest example of Ted's jealousy. He never really does anything to try and sabotage his two really good friends from getting married. Um, unlike some of the antics of Ross, which you will get into in a second. You have a glint in your eye. You're looking forward to that. Um, yep, yeah, but with Ted, yeah, I, th I think it just more manifests in private admissions that he's still hurt by this and he's not entirely 100% okay with Barney marrying Robin. And before... And before the engagement, so Barney and Robin have a failed attempt at a relationship about midway through the series. And Ted's really condescending towards the way they handle that relationship, for one. But in the first instance of Barney and Robin hooking up, Barney and Ted's friendship breaks down for a good portion of the series. They don't speak to each other. And that's another example of the way in which Ted's possessiveness of Robin, even though he's not dating her anymore, he's engaged to Stella at this point. Um, really, really comes to the surface. And I mean, I, I need to now mention here the obligatory parallel in Friends, which is Joey and Rachel. And again, it's the same thing. Joey and Rachel start to get together. And to be fair, Matt LeBlanc's not the best actor. Uh, <laughs> there was no chemistry between them. But on paper, I really liked the idea of that. I really liked the idea of after all this time... This one guy who really does see her as a friend because we know, except for, you know, a few kind of joking comments towards the beginning of the series, he's only ever seen Rachel as friend. He takes her out when she's pregnant or when she's, I think, maybe first had the child. I can't remember exactly how it plays out. But, you know, he takes her out on a date to make her feel like she's, you know, young and dating and attractive again. And then they get together and ultimately... Ross can't handle it and they break up because they don't want uh, to cause problems there. So I kind of, I had to mention that one because it's so similar to How I Met Your Mother. But when we're thinking about Ross and we're thinking about jealousy, the most obvious uh, connection is Mark. Fun fact, the one with all the jealousy, the episode about Mark, was directed by the voice actor of the Beast in the um, cartoon Beauty and the Beast. So, what <laughs> connections? <laughs> so, I, I mentioned when we we're talking about aggr aggressive pursuit, how there was more I wanted to say, but I did want to save it. 
Ross's jealousy about Mark is a big problem. So Rachel gets this new job and Mark, this attractive guy, has helped her get this job. Now, Ross cannot accept the idea that it could be anything except for, you know, him wanting to get with her. That's the only possible reason that Mark could have gotten the job for her. And you know what? It could be possible. That's that's definitely a possibility. But the fact that Ross can't see that she could even potentially be good at this job is... I mean, it's really sad. The most unbelievable thing happened to me today. Hi. Hi. So I'm having lunch at Monica's, and this guy starts talking to me, and it turns out he works for a buyer at Bloomingdale's, and there happens to be an opening in his department. So I gave him my phone number, and he's going to call me this weekend to see if he can get me an interview. Whoa. I know. <laughs> what, so this guy's helping you for no apparent reason? Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's a total stranger? Yeah. His name is, um... Mark something. Huh, sounds like Mark something wants to have some sex. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, why else would he just, you know, swoop in out of nowhere for no reason? To be nice? <laughs> hey, Joey, uh, are men ever nice to strange women for no reason? No, only for sex. Thank you. <laughs> so did you, uh, did you tell Mark something about me? I didn't have to because I was wearing my I Heart Raw sandwich board and ringing my bell. <laughs> and he's constantly making kind of comments to undercut the authenticity of her in that, um, in that role. So Rachel's first day on the job, Mark is there helping her because she doesn't know any of the systems or anything like that. Someone has to teach her and she's an assistant. Why wouldn't the other assistant, Mark, be the person to teach her? That makes a lot of sense. But Ross calls up and Mark's there. Mark answers the phone um, because it's the first call she's had. So he's kind of showing her how you answer the phone. And Ross is not happy that he was there to answer the phone. He's like, why is he in your office? Hi, honey. Hi. What? Uh, what's Mark doing answering your phone? Oh, he's just goofing around. Oh, yeah, that's, that's funny. <laughs> Why, uh, why isn't he goofing around in his own office? <laughs> Honey, this is his office too. I told you, or Joanna's two assistants. Why does Joanna need two assistants? Uh, how, how lazy is she? Oh, oh my God, what did I just do? What? I think I just shipped 3,000 bras to personnel. Honey, I gotta go. Mark, I need you. Okay, bye-bye. Ow! Oh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, sweetie. I was just trying to... Uh, I was dialing another number. Um, so he's kind of always making these comments that undercut the fact that Rachel might actually have been hired for a legitimate reason and might be quite good at what she does. So then Ross goes on to send Rachel just obnoxious amounts of gifts. So they're piling up around the desk. What's that? Uh, it's, uh, it's from Ross. It's a love bug. <laughs> wow. Somebody wants people to know you have a boyfriend. Oh, no. No, 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 no. That's not, not, not what he's doing. He's just, he's just really romantic. Uh, excuse me, are you Rachel Green? Yes. One, two, three. Congratulations on your first week at your brand new job. It won't be long before you're the boss. Oomba, oomba, oomba. And you know who will be there to support you. Your one and only boyfriend. It's nice to have a boyfriend. Your loyal, loving boyfriend, Ross. Ross. 
And as Rachel rightly says, it's like you're marking your territory. Uh, and Mark does kind of tell her, well, hey, this is what's going on. And, that you know, Chandler and Joey, um, who are, are not the best advice givers, they're kind of like, well, of course, <laughs> of course he does that. He's trying to be a confidant. And what you should do is you should show up to the office. Mark's a genius. But why? How? How is he a genius? Look, don't you see what's happening here? Instead of hitting on her right away, he's becoming her confidant. Now he's going to be the guy that she goes to to complain about you. What am I going to do? Well, why don't you send her a musical bug? Oh, no, you already did that. <laughs> All right, look, you're going to have to go there yourself now, okay? Make a few surprise visits. I don't know, you guys. All right, fine, don't do anything. Just sit here and talk to us. Meanwhile, she is talking to him about you. And he's being Mr. Joe sensitive. And she starts thinking, maybe this is the guy for me because he understands me. And before you know it, she's with him. That's not good advice. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but he does. He just shows up to the office uninvited. Um, he listens in. So rather than just walking into the office to meet his girlfriend, he kind of sits around the corner listening in. Misinterprets a conversation Mark is having with his actual girlfriend. Comes and breaks him apart and then needs to cover for it. Rachel's obviously really embarrassed by this. And then on their anniversary, so they've been dating for a year at this point. This isn't a new relationship. They've been together for a year. Ross should know Rachel pretty well by this point. So she calls up saying, I know it's our anniversary, but there's all these issues. She sounds really, really stressed. She's like, oh, there was this order. I've got to deal with it. I'm really sorry. I'm going to be working late. Uh, I just, I don't have time for it tonight. I'll be home late. He shows up anyway with a picnic lights a little fire in the office by mistake. He loudly cracks Pepper when she's on the phone. So she's looking clearly stressed out by everything that's going on. But he tries to create this little romantic situation. She tells him, I don't have time for this. I told you I was busy. I don't have time for this. I'll be home later. Uh, eventually she needs to tell him to go home. He does. And when she gets home, he's ready for her to apologize to him for telling him to go home. Look, um, about what happened earlier. No, well, I, I completely understand you were, you were stressed. I was going to give you a chance to apologize to me. For what? For letting you throw me out of your office? You had no right coming down to my office, Ross. You do not bring a picnic basket to somebody's work unless maybe they were a park ranger. <laughs> Yeah, well, excuse me for wanting to be with my girlfriend on our anniversary. Boy, what an ass am I. But I told you I didn't have the time. Yeah, well, you never have the time. I mean, I don't feel like I even have a girlfriend anymore, Rachel. Oh, Ross, what do you want from me? You want me, you want me to quit my job so you can feel like you have a girlfriend? No, but it would be nice if you'd realize that it's just a job. Just a job? Yes. Ross, do you realize this is the first time in my life I'm doing something I actually care about? This is the first time in my life I'm doing something that I'm actually good at? I mean, if you don't get that... Oh, hey, I get that, okay? I get that big time, and I'm happy for you, but I'm tired of having a relationship with your answering machine, okay? I don't know what to do anymore. Well, neither do I. Is this about Mark? <sighs> oh, my God. Okay, it's not. It's... Oh, my God. <laughs> I cannot keep having the same fight over and over again, Ross. No, you're, you're, you're making this too hard. Oh, I'm, I'm making this too hard. Okay, what do you want me to do? I don't know. I don't know. Look, oh, maybe we should just take a break. 
and this is just like a one of many things that he does throughout the series. When Ross and Rachel are later living together because they've got a kid together, he purposely doesn't tell her about a message that he takes when a guy calls up wanting to go on a date with her. This should be, you know, in contrast to the time that Rachel accidentally deletes a message that Emily left for him and she waits around to tell him about it. So they clearly have very different ideas about ownership. Rachel does get jealous. She admits she's jealous. She actually gets jealous in the same episode as the whole, you know, the one with all the jealousy. But Rachel never pretends, for very long at least, that um, she's not jealous and she never... I don't think she ever comes close to the way that Ross behaves in terms of actively trying to stop other people owning, for want of a better term, Ross. I don't understand how anyone could see all of Ross's actions, particularly with the Mark arc, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and have a positive positive view on him and that of course his subsequent actions during the break as well like yeah. i david schwimmer is a funny dude yep. he's a very funny dude his comic timing is fantastic but ross particularly with the breakup with rachel and the subsequent actions is just terrible he's just toxic by this point and speaking about all of this jeopardizing of careers I think this ties into another, I mean, potentially the most toxic element of these kind of displays of a very particular kind of masculinity, which is the desire for a passive wife. Now, obviously, Beauty and the Beast is not set in the same time period <laughs> as Friends and How I Met Your Mother. So, you know, you could even argue that Gaston could be a little bit more forgivable in some of his kind of ideas about women. Not not much, but <laughs> um, certainly he was not unusual in his idea of the wife will be this passive homemaker. But how exactly does it um, manifest in Beauty and the Beast? I mean, Gaston basically pitches this idea of the perfect life to Belle, where she's just at home, popping out, kids... Um, while he comes home with his latest kill and puts it on the fire, um, Belle's pretty much, her characterizations are always about wonder and wanting to see more of the world as well. Um, but this vision that Gaston pitches just has no relevance to everything that we know about Belle. It has no books, it has no travels, it has nothing that gives any indication that Gaston even knows who he's talking to. The only children you should concern yourself with are your own. I'm not ready to have children. Maybe you haven't met the right man. It's a small village, Gaston. I've met them all. Well, maybe you should take another look. Some of us have changed. Gaston, we could never make each other happy. No one can change that much. Oh, Belle. Do you know what happens to spinsters in this village after their fathers die? They beg for scraps like poor Agatha. This is our world, Belle. For simple folk like us, it doesn't get any better. I might be a farm girl, but I'm not simple, and I'm never going to marry you, Gaston. I'm sorry. So how does Ross perceive his ideal wife, Mia? <laughs> I mean... 
I don't even know if I can say much more on this than I haven't already said. Right from the beginning, we know Ross wants a wife. He doesn't want a really fulfilling intellectual relationship. That's not how he characterizes it when we first meet him. We know of Ross. The way we meet Ross is Ross wants another wife. And like I said, we, we watch Rachel evolve throughout the seasons from someone who Ross describes as just a waitress to being someone who's really career-driven. She clearly has some very different ideas about how her life and how motherhood and how a career should all fit together. She understands that when she goes on maternity leave that her job potentially might be at risk. She's going to have competition. So she returns early to try and secure that place um, and keep you know, climbing up that ladder. So I think what's heartbreaking about the whole Ross and Rachel story arc is we get this beautiful development of character of Rachel from episode one in season one to, you know, the last episode of season 10, where she started off as someone who is really shallow. She is very superficial in what she cares about. But the first decision she makes in episode one is to cut up her daddy's credit card. And from then on, we see her, you know, she takes a few backward steps, but she's slowly getting more and more focused on what she wants to be and how she wants to define herself. And she wants to define herself as someone who's passionate about her career. Like, you know, he says, it's just a job. He describes it as just a job. And she says, this is the first time in my life that I'm doing something that I actually care about. This is the first time in my life I'm doing something I'm actually good at. Hang on, hang on. So it's just a job. Uh, But when Rachel is trying to get ready to you know, accompany him to a very important event of some kind. I think it was a conference or an award ceremony. And she's just taking so much time to get ready because she wants to get it right. Ross snaps at her (laughs) because, you know, being on time is so important. So it's very clear that his job expectations are much more prioritized in his view uh, than Rachel's. Yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to the superiority complex. He is an academic. He is... Uh, someone he feels like has a much more prestigious career. He's a much more important person. Uh, She starts off as just a waitress. Then she just has a job. Uh, She works in retail. He doesn't respect her. He doesn't respect what she does. And he thinks what he does is inherently more important. So then again, we come back to the finale. And without recapping too much, Rachel's finally given a position to climb higher in the ladder, something she couldn't do when she was still in New York. To do that, she needs to move to Paris, and Ross comes to stop her. And Rachel makes the choice to stay with him. So how do we feel about this? Does the fact that it is her choice textually change the status of how we're thinking about this trope? I mean, these tropes exist because they tie into these well-worn expectations of what should happen at the end of a sitcom, particularly a romantic sitcom where i mean the main dynamic the main romantic dynamic between the two main characters comes to fruition finally i mean we get that again with how i mentioned muller we get in so many other sitcoms so i think it doesn't really change much because it had to happen she made that choice not not because the show was doing anything different or trying to make a statement about it's okay to choose that path it's more they had to fulfill the expectation that Ross and Rachel got together. Um, and I'm, I mean, can we have a character end up happy 
having just pursued her career for once, that that would be nice. <laughs> that, like, I mean, even Robin, in a way, uh, she bucks that trend significantly, but still ends up in the end with Ted, assumably. Um, so I don't think even How I Met Your Mother plays that particular role as well, like follows that dynamic through, that trope through. It feels a little bit like capitulation with Rachel, to be honest. And it doesn't help that this, the final season of Friends feels very rushed to me. It's a half season. Um, and they went from zero to a thousand in getting them all to break up with their existing partners so that they're all happily married or engaged or together in the end. Yeah, no, I, I, it feels more like fulfilling expectations than anything else to me. What about you, Mia? Yeah, I mean, that's why we love Buffy so much, right? She ends up single and having saved the world. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't even know if I've got anything else more to say on that. It's That's just it. it. It comes down to, even if Rachel did choose textually, and, you know, we, we also aren't, this show is about, sorry, this episode's about why Ross and Ted are pretty terrible not about why Rachel is great Rachel has a lot of flaws <laughs> um but it is it, you know the trope itself is what's the problem the trope is why um these characters get ridden it's because there's this expectation particularly in sitcoms for happy endings where the girl and the guy get together and usually the way it plays out again not always but usually and certainly in this case it's the man ends up with the woman, with the job, with his friends, with the home, everything like that. And the woman has to give up all the kind of things that made her who she is apart from her relationship to have the relationship. That's kind of why I do appreciate the way that How I Met Your Mother ended, because it is not just a straightforward, happy ending. I mean, the mother dies, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. And Robin, even when married to Barney, she is the career woman. Uh, Barney gives up his career and travels around the world with her, chasing his blogging as a, as an income stream. And it doesn't go well, and they eventually do get a divorce. But the way in which How I Met Your Mother ends, it does fulfill those expectations, but the road to getting there is, it makes you cry in places. So um, the, just the contrast between the way in which those two finales play out is kind of why I do still appreciate How I Met Your Mother. So you mentioned how they get to that finale. How do they get to that finale? So I think it's fair to say that Ted demonstrably does not foresee the early incompatibilities between himself and Robin. I mean, they both have to undertake this arc of, you know, eventually reaching a point in which they are compatible with each other. And like I just said, it's when Ted's, Ted's first wife has passed away and Robin has had that dream career that she always wanted and has also uh, had her marriage with Barney Breakdown. Sorry, Barney, you miss out. Um, but along the way, I mean, Ted is just so clearly incapable of dealing with the fact that Robin wants to do her own thing, do her career, um, not settle down for ages, even though those red flags are all over the place in season one and season two, and that's why they eventually broke up. It's all about Robin still wanting to go to Argentina and Japan and all that. She directly mentions this and that is the moment where he finally realizes, you know what? 
different places at the moment. But again, that's what, 40, 50 episodes in? And like, how many times can you beat a goddamn drum? Uh, so in relation to this trope about the desire for a passive, wa- uh, passive wife, I mean, I think Ted fulfills that quite quite odiously in the in the early seasons because he just clearly cannot deal with the fact that there is a character a person that he's dating that has her own agency and wishes and dreams and so i think in the final moments when we get that implied happy ending where he's back and she's looking out her window at him down at the street like in the first season and it's heavily implied they get back together it is different because robin has had that life whereas ted has gone through this whole process of convincing himself he's chasing the one when in actual fact he's not uh he's chasing robin both subconsciously and consciously in the end uh and he's finally come to terms with that that's the way i feel that's the way in which the the series ends which is a little different to the way in which friends portrays it but still it's a reperpetuation of that trope Now, after all this discussion of how awful Ted and Ross are at times throughout uh, How I Met Your Mother and Friends, I'm sure at some point the question has been asked by listeners, why aren't you talking about Barney and Joey, who are much more uh, problematic in their performance of masculinity? And they are. They really are. They are gross in um, how they pursue women. They are basically these huge hyperboles of the, you know, pickup artists, essentially. Like, they're... Ugh. But the show doesn't pretend they're anything except for that. And I think that's what's most important for us. And also why we're comparing Ted and Ross to Gaston. We look at someone like Joey and Barney, and they are obviously, except for being protagonists they are the more obvious gestons of how mate mother and friends they are very fixated on the attractiveness of women they have really obvious performance of macho masculinity at times they're all about i guess almost tricking women and it's this focus on physical attraction and not really necessarily caring about who these women are how many mother and friends don't want us to think that about ted and ross they want us to like them. They want us to think of them as endearing matches for the women they end up with. So how are they different from Gaston? So one one point I want to make first is that while Barney is very much what you just called him, a pickup artist, he's incredibly disgusting in that respect, though Neil Patrick Harris is fucking hilarious throughout the series. He's a standout. Um, I do actually think they attempt to do stuff with Barney Stinson, um, particularly in the middle portion of the series. And I mean, yes, they try and do the same thing with Joey as well. So I'm, I mean, both Joey and Barney develop into much more likable people, but there are times where they're being just overtly gross and the show doesn't pretend they're anything except for overtly gross. Yeah, and I, I think it's actually fair to say the same about Ted and Ross as well. It's not... The, their character is not entirely what we've been describing here. They do have really tender moments as well. Um, but I think the the presence of Joey and Barney in both series is interesting because because of that sort of overtness that you mentioned. It kind of distracts away from the 
the odiousness that's represented by Ted and Ross in many ways. Although, again, texturally, I think both Ross and Ted are treated as as idiots at times too, just not always at the most pertinent moments, which is kind of our point here today. So obviously Ross and Ted don't go on a murderous crusade to kill someone who's <laughs> dating their the woman of their desire. Um, there's some very obvious differences here, but... Although Ross's sandwich does show that he, he can be quite aggressive and uh, <laughs> he does have anger okay. issues. Okay, okay. <laughs> the sandwich? I am right fucking there with Ross. You eat my fucking sandwich at work, I'll kill you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that might be the most relatable Ross has ever been to me, is getting that upset about someone eating his food. <laughs> it's a fucking Subway sandwich. <laughs> Made from turkey, from Thanksgiving turkey. With you don't do maker. that. <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> over identification, much. <laughs> yeah. So obviously Gaston, this character, he, he he tries to blackmail Belle's father into forcing a marriage upon Belle. Um, or he has him taken away to an asylum as well. Threatens to have Belle taken away too. Unless she marries him. So he's, I mean, he's an aspirational rapist at this point. And so I don't think you can really say that about Ross and Ted. But the overlaps of these tropes that we've been covering today between Gaston, Ross and Ted, the trifecta, highlights that it is vital to take a look at the nice guy character, the nice, the nice male guy character in, um, in sitcoms because it masks so much problematic territory like when i was discussing all the romantic gestures that ted would thrust upon robin throughout the early seasons if that weren't framed as endearing you have gaston you have gaston with the wedding waiting outside so much of that that description that we've had of gaston is kind of reminiscent of both ross and ted but we don't perceive it as such unless we've had it pointed out because of the way in which these tropes function and the ways in which these characters are framed and how our expectations are framed for this particular genre. I mean, at the end of the day, the subtext of both How I Met Your Mother and Friends is if you pursue the quote-unquote girl of your dreams for long enough, you will be rewarded with her. And I think that's the problem with both of these shows. It romanticizes the idea that you need to keep going because true love is what's going to prevail and what you think is your true love is is probably going to be your true love and you should just keep going for it no matter how many times she says she's not into it. If you liked this episode, we'd love you to rate us on iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website, www.tropewatchers.com for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatchers. And you can tweet or follow us on Instagram at tropewatchers. And please do. I've been having a lot of fun with Instagram lately. You can also email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Mia. And I'm Scott, and we are your Trope Watchers. Trope Watchers.